Uh, we are continuing our series. We are in this uh, final chapter of the story of God and his people, this five-year series that we've been doing on the uh, narrative of the Old Testament. And as this narrative comes to a close, uh, we've been looking at this era of rebuilding and restoration in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, now, I don't watch a whole lot of reality TV. I don't know if you guys do, but one show that's always caught my attention and that you know, I've seen clips of at various times is a show called Kitchen Nightmares. Does anybody watch this? You guys are embarrassed. I see a couple like, oh yeah, I watch it. Anyway, the idea behind this show is there's this world-class chef, Gordon Ramsay. You guys have probably heard of him, unless you're Matt Wada, who doesn't know who anyone is. But basically, Gordon Ramsay is famous for being this really profane, blunt, temperamental chef. And so he goes to all these failing restaurants to help them revive their business. And he, uh, even though he's kind of a hard guy to please. He really does care about food, and he cares about the restaurant industry. Now again, I've never actually seen a, a full episode. I don't really watch that much TV. But in every clip I've ever seen, the basic framework of the episode kind of goes like this. He shows up at a restaurant, and he's just appalled by what he finds. He's like angry or sad or frustrated. The kitchen's a mess. Uh, the, the wait staff is disengaged. The menu is boring, you know, anything and everything you can think of, he finds in, you know, different episodes. But at some point in the episode, the focus changes. See, initially he works on dealing with all these really practical matters, but over time, the more he's working on this, he almost always finds out that the real problem is not the messiness of the kitchen or the menu, it's the owner's. Like behind all of the dysfunction is usually a person or a group of people who needs to change. They need to take responsibility and embrace a better future for the restaurant. And as we continue in our series, this is really the, the main thrust of today's passage in Ezra. Uh, so far, the rebuilding that we've seen in Ezra has been uh, largely more the physical structures for life and worship. So they've rebuilt homes and cities, they've rebuilt the altar and the temple in Jerusalem. But today we see that what really needs rebuilding, what's behind really all of the dysfunction is the people. They need to take ownership and responsibility for the restoration that's taking place. Now in this series we've been talking a lot about the reality that God is rebuilding and restoring his church his world through us. We've been looking at the parallels between the restoration era and our own. And so what we find in our passage today is a really challenging possibility. This possibility that in the same way as in kitchen nightmares, in the same way as Old Testament Israel, that in our lives, in our world, what really needs to change is not the physical structures, it's not the, the organization of the church, but what really needs to change is us. It is our hearts. It's the people of God who need to embrace what he's doing. So let's go ahead and dive into the word. We're going to be uh, finally meeting the title character of the book of Ezra. I don't know if you guys noticed. It's been two weeks, six chapters. We haven't seen Ezra yet, but today he finally enters the story. Now he shows up in chapter 7. And what we're told by this chronicler, the writer of the book of Ezra, is that it's been about 60 years since the completion of the temple. And so we don't 
totally know why the story is told this way. Why doesn't he tell us about this 60-year period? We don't even totally know exactly what happens during this time. But in any case, the story skips ahead, and we see Ezra getting ready to come to Jerusalem. And we immediately find out that Ezra's role in God's rebuilding plan is not as a builder, not as an administrator, not as a warrior, but he's a teacher. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 7 says that he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. And then this point is emphasized again in verse 10, where it says that Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So God wanted uh, Ezra to teach the law. This is why he was coming home, why he was returning to Israel. And this kind of underscores this whole point that we've uh, begun to talk about, this idea that for Israel, God was going to need to reshape their understanding of the law, reshape their understanding of obedience and purpose as he rebuilt his people. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Ezra chapter 9. So in uh, Ezra 7 and 8, we find out he's uh, coming home with the blessing of this king, Artaxerxes. And in Ezra 9, uh, he finally comes home. And, and this portion of the text is actually narrated by Ezra himself. So Ezra 9, verse 1. Uh, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Ezra says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and my cloak torn and fell on my knees and with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, 
Do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and has, have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who would commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. So just to recap, Ezra comes home, and he is devastated by what he finds. He finds the people, the, the exiles who had returned home, living in sin. Now keep in mind, these are the same people who, who came back when we talked about two weeks ago, the ones who showed up. So these are the faithful ones who came and who helped rebuild the altar, helped rebuild the temple. But now, after uh, decades, they have sinned by settling down and marrying foreign women. This includes uh, the leaders and officials of the nation. It includes the priests and the Levites, those who were responsible uh, for leading proper worship. And so Ezra calls out the Israelites and their marriages, and he comes before God in shame and repentance at the magnitude of this sin. What we find out in in chapter 10, which we're we're not going to read, is that their solution to this problem, their response, is to send the foreign women away along with their children. Now, before we go on, it's really important for us to understand very clearly what the issue is here and what it's not. Uh, Because it's easy to see how a passage like this can be misapplied if we take it too literally. I mean, there are a lot of interracial marriages here at CBC. I don't know about you, but I don't want to send away my beautiful non-Japanese wife. I don't want to send away my wonderful little have children. We don't want to do that. We also don't want to read this passage and think that we can't associate with non-believers at all, that we have to keep everything clean and pure, build a wall around ourselves, and not make friendships with anyone who's sinful or non-believing. Those are definitely some problematic applications. But at the same time, we also don't want to just throw this out. When we read a passage like this, it feels pretty outdated. It doesn't really feel super relevant for our time. It makes us uncomfortable. And it can be easy to take something like this, toss it out, and say, well, it's the Old Testament. It's a different time. It has nothing to do with, with you or me. But what we find when we dig a little deeper is that there is a really important principle for us in this passage, and one that speaks to exactly where we are. Because at the heart of it, this passage is really about influence. It's about influence. See, Ezra's disgust and frustration, let's be really clear, is not really about ethnicity. That might be part of it, but the point here isn't that only ethnic Jews can be good and everyone else is bad. The point isn't that God would never love an Amorite or Jebusite or Perizzite or Canaanite. The point isn't really about interracial marriage. Instead, this passage is 100% about influence. 
The problem is that in the context of these marriages, the beliefs and practices that made Israel distinct as a people were being compromised. Now, I think anyone who is either married or in any kind of close relationship, a really good friend or a parent or lover, whatever, can understand why this would be true. Because the closer you are to someone, the more time you spend with someone, the more life you share with someone, the more alike you're eventually going to become, the more you influence each other in a variety of ways. Uh, I see this all the time in my marriage. Alyssa and I have been married for 16 years. And so we've influenced each other in all kinds of ways, both big and small. I was recently thinking about the ways we've influenced each other to be better communicators. Uh, over our marriage, I've become a much better listener as a result of our marriage and our conversations. And Alyssa's become uh, more able to be assertive and open about how she feels about things. We've influenced each other in our hobbies. Uh, we have come to love nature and the outdoors largely as a result of our relationship. And that's kind of grown throughout our marriage. We influence each other in what we eat. When we started dating, I don't know if Alyssa had ever had Asian food, and now she has songos like once a month. <laughs> Alyssa drinks IPAs for crying out loud. There, this is a lot of influence in our marriage. We influence each other in what we wear. I have a pair of Birkenstocks. That shows you the power of influence in relationships. They're awesome. The closer you are to someone, the more time you spend with them, the more that influence is felt. And so the issue that bothered Ezra in chapter 9 was not simply the fact that these Israelite men married foreign women, because we actually see several instances in the Old Testament where Gentile women come into the people of God through marriage. Instead, the issue that bothered Ezra was that Israel had allowed themselves, again, to be influenced in belief and practice by a foreign, pagan, sinful people. Now, to understand why this is so important, we have to unpack this issue of influence a little bit and see why it's so significant, not just in our passage, but in the entire biblical narrative. When you think about Israel's mission as God's people, what God created them, what God gathered them to do, influence is really at the center of it. Let's go back to Adam and Eve in the garden when God made them to be image bearers. Think about Abraham and God calling him to be a blessing to the nations. When God takes Israel out of Egypt, he says, I'm going to make you to be a kingdom of priests. In each case, God is talking about influence, this idea that Israel was going to help him to mold and shape the world around them. Ultimately, they were going to reveal God's heart, God's character to the nations to help them see that there is only one God to help them see that living within his promise was where all the real goodness and blessing and life could be found. And so this idea of being holy, this, this word holiness, which I think sometimes today we, we push back against a little bit, it has some negative connotations for us, but really holiness was simply about being different, being distinct in both 
theology and behavior, how they thought and how they lived. But it wasn't being different for the sake of being different. It was being different in a way that reflected who God was, remaining distinct so that character could be seen clearly. And so what we find is that holiness is the key to influence. The more holy you are, the more you reflect God's character, the more you can influence the world around you. I can imagine for a second that you uh, asked me for a restaurant recommendation. You were going to have one really good meal and you wanted to know what I thought. Pastor Brandon, where should I eat this one great meal? Now, let's just say, for example, that I said Lowry's. Lowry's is awesome. You should go there. Lowry's is the one restaurant you should choose above any other restaurant to go eat at. Now, you're curious. Uh, you want to know more. So you ask me, well, what's so great about Lowry's? What do you get there? Now, what if I said, I don't know. I've never been there. I've never eaten at Lowry's. That would be a problem for you, right? Like, well, why are you recommending this to me? Why are you suggesting it? How do you know it's good if you haven't eaten there? And I could say, well, I heard it's good. I've read Yelp reviews. I've uh, seen pictures and I've seen a, you know, the menu. Me and my friends, we spent a lot of time talking about how good Lowry's is. I've never actually been there. I mean, my recommendation would have so much less weight for you. My ability to influence your decision is greatly diminished if I haven't experienced the good thing that I'm talking about. Obviously, right? But I mean, think about this. If, even if I had been to Lowry's, but what if I had only been there once? Been there for one meal. And I said, well, this thing was really good, and this one experience was really good. You might be more intrigued. You might be more willing to give it a shot. But not as much as if I said, I've eaten every meal for the last three years at Lowry's. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I eat there every single day, and I've tried everything on the menu. I have sampled the flavor and texture of every steak, side, and dessert there, and everything is awesome. That recommendation would have some weight to it. That is the relationship between holiness, sitting down at God's table and experiencing all the goodness and blessing that he has to offer in obedience to him, between the relationship between blessing, holiness, and mission. Our ability to influence others to experience a taste of what God is serving. And so when we come back to our passage with this in mind, with this idea of holiness and influence and all that Israel was called to be, we can see why Ezra, a teacher of the law, why he's so brokenhearted. Because think about this reversal. Israel was called to be an influencer, to be the influencer to the nations. He walks into Jerusalem and he finds out that not only are they not being an influencer, they are the influenced. They are being molded and shaped by the culture and the peoples around them. The stream is flowing in the wrong direction. 
And so the marriages of foreign women are a problem primarily because of what they represent in the hearts of the people, that they are perfectly comfortable being influenced by other beliefs and other practices. They are perfectly fine living alongside of and sharing in idolatrous behavior, sinful practices. They're fine raising sons and daughters who will be mixed, not just in their ethnicity, but mixed in their commitment to God. So Ezra sees this, and you could understand why he's so crushed, why the, the passage says he's appalled like two or three times. He can't believe it. And you know, we don't find out exactly why Israel did it. Now, there are a lot of reasons we can kind of put together based on the context. Uh, foreign nations uh, in the area might have offered some kind of protection or security. Uh, Israel, you know, didn't have a lot of status in the area. So getting married to a foreign woman might provide an Israelite man with some level of status. It's possible that they were just really beautiful and attractive. But another reason we have to consider is this. It's been 58 years since the temple was rebuilt. That's a long time. And from all we can gather, not much happens in that 58 years. And so you can imagine these Israelites who came back home, who showed up, who were faithful to what God called them to do, and then they wait 60 years and they don't see God working. God doesn't bless them in the way they expect or in the way they were hoping. And so it's possible they became disillusioned with their mission. They didn't see revival in their nation, so they just kind of moved on, began living for lesser goods, lesser blessings, because it was right in front of them. It was tangible. They could see it. They could touch it. It was real in the moment. But whatever the reason, the root problem is pretty clear. They came to believe that that compromise was Okay, that holiness in some areas of life was maybe not essential. And so they began to believe that pagan influence over just, just, just this one thing. That's all right. It's, it's just my, my marriage. It's, it's just my family. It's just this one little idol. It's just this, this small sacrifice to, to this God. I can still come back to the temple every Sunday and worship. I can still be a true Israelite. I can still do most of the things in the law. It's just one small thing. But they didn't realize the effect of this compromise, the effect of the influence on their lives and the way it was degrading their identity and their mission to be holy people, to be influencers. And so Ezra says, man, this has to change. This cannot stand. We have to do something about this. Now, at this point, hopefully it's pretty clear to us why this passage is so challenging for us, why it should be. Because really, when we read Ezra, it forces us to ask this question for ourselves. Am I an influencer for the kingdom? Am I influencing people for the values of Jesus? Am I committed to God with my, with my whole life? Am I doing what Jesus said when he called me to be 
the light of the world. What Peter said when he said, you now are a nation of priests. Am I an influencer or am I primarily being influenced by the world around me? By its beliefs, by its values, by its priorities, by its practices. Ezra wants us to ask ourselves which way is the stream flowing in my life. And you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I think a sad reality is that so often the mission of the church, what this is all about to be an influence, becomes diluted and compromised by the influence of other values and other behaviors. You know, that's not to say that we can't have interests outside of Jesus. It's not to say that every behavior, every thought that isn't church-related is negative. But the point is that so much of what we do is motivated by things that have nothing to do with Jesus, and, and even more than that, are often completely opposed to who Jesus wants us to be and what Jesus wants to do in our life. And in a way, we have married ourselves, connected ourselves to beliefs and practices that dramatically reduce our holiness and our influence. And so the question, obviously, is what do we do? And that's a hard question that doesn't have clear answers. Now, in Ezra 10, it's pretty black and white. And it's not pretty. They, they gather at the temple to send away their foreign wives and children. And honestly, I, I can't explain how that works. I can't explain how to reconcile that action with the grace and mercy of God. I read that passage and I hope that they were sent away with, with some way of living, that they were either sent back to their homes or that they were given some kind of shelter and provision. But the Bible doesn't tell us that, and we kind of have to deal with that tension. But even in that kind of ugliness, there is a larger principle that we can consider. There is value in what we can learn from this choice. Because again, what's behind the action is a heart that we can emulate. This idea that they were willing to acknowledge their sin, and they did what they had to do, to eliminate this sinful influence in their life. They heard the, the teaching of Ezra, the teaching of the law, and they said, my commitment to Yahweh, I, I get it, it has to come before everything else. And I, I cannot worship Yahweh alone, I cannot obey him fully, I cannot be an influencer in the context of this marriage, so what choice do I have? Jesus had a similar command in the Gospels. In Matthew 5, he says, hey, if your right hand is causing you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off and throw it out. Get rid of it. And that's, you know, obviously a little bit of hyperbole. But the point is clear. Jesus is saying what you believe and how you live is so important. It's so important to being a disciple. It's so important to following me. It's so important to the kingdom that you may have to make some hard choices about what stays in your life and what doesn't. 
And so if there is anything in your life that's influencing you to love something more than God, you have to deal with it. Now, in some cases, that might mean to just get rid of it completely. Some cases, it just might mean to put some distance between you and something or someone. But whatever the case, you cannot simply stay where you are and let that influence continue. When I was uh, in high school, I had a really, really close group of friends. Six of us guys, and we had been together since elementary school, second or third grade. Uh, Lenny, Nate, Evan, Josh, Johnson, and myself. And man, we were uh, close. We spent all of our time together. I loved those guys. They were some, my support system through you know, the ups and downs of high school, bad breakups, my parents' divorce. We uh, went through a lot. But there was a lot of brokenness in that group. And I can say without any doubt that we influenced each other in really negative ways. Uh, we were at times mean-spirited, angry, lustful. We lacked integrity in our studies. We were vain. We were arrogant. We were prideful. I can say for sure that I was the absolute worst version of myself in the context of those friendships. Well, after I graduated high school, I, I went to UCLA, and that's where I really kind of discovered or rediscovered my faith. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Alyssa, who was and is a great influence in my life. Uh, I got involved in a campus fellowship. Uh, people like Pastor Nick helped to reconnect me uh, to church and ministry. I can't say enough about the influence that Nick has been in my life. And so in that phase, I began to explore the goodness of life with God in new ways. But all the while, I had this question in the back of my head, am I going to reconnect with these guys? Am I going to reach out to them? Because on one hand, I missed those friendships. I missed them and, and spending time with them. But I also knew I didn't want to go back to the person I had been. I didn't want to go back to thinking the way I thought with them and acting the way I acted with them. So I had to figure out what I should do. Uh, in the end, I ended up reconnecting with only one of them, uh, Josh, who I've talked about a ton in my messages. He's my best friend, and he had a similar college experience, uh, rediscovering his faith, and uh, so we reconnected. But I haven't spoken to the other guys in 20 years. Now, I'm not telling you this story because I think it was this, just this awesome thing to do, or because this is the right way to apply this passage. I think a lot still about whether that was the right decision, and there's a lot about it that I regret. But I tell you that story because it illustrates the challenge that we face. This is not a black and white issue for us. We can't cut out all the people in our life who are sinful. We can't cut out everyone who might influence you in negative ways. I mean, at the end of the day, right, the whole point is to be an influence. To go to the Lennies, the Nates, the Evans, the Johnsons, and to show them, reveal to them, reflect to them the goodness and love of God. That's why we exist. And so we walk this fine line, and it's hard to know how to do it right. To be influenced, to be an influence, but not be influenced to be in the world, but not of the world. 
But as I've you know, processed through it and gotten some distance from that decision, uh, I've gained some, some peace about it. And this is kind of just my reflection on that decision. Uh, I think at that time, what I needed, what was right for me, was to get away from that influence. Because that was such a formative time in my life. I was 19, 20. And I was so vulnerable to outside influence. And I look back and I see the tremendous benefit in that phase of filling my life with people who were pointing me to Jesus. Listening to voices who would talk about his goodness. Being around people who prioritized obedience. And I do think there are times in our life where we just have to be willing to run away from influence because there are times when it just causes us to sin and we feel trapped by it. We feel stuck. We feel like those influences control us. And if that's the case, we have to find a way to put some distance. And what that looks like is different for everyone. But what I've also realized is that, you know, who I am now I'm in a different place, and so we've kind of talked about getting back together, having a reunion, all of us reconnecting, and I've been so for that because now I've experienced so much more of God's grace and goodness in my life, uh, the joy of obedience, and not to say that I'm impervious to influence, but I feel like I could be around those guys and have those relationships be different. And so we have to be open to that possibility, too, that you might be in a phase where you've been running away from influence, trying to keep yourself apart from anything sinful, and you need to embrace it and step out there and say, no, I'm ready to influence someone else. I'm ready to break down that wall, go outside, and be light. And again, at the end of the day, there, there aren't clear-cut answers. But I think this is a good question that we need to keep on our minds and our hearts. How important is it to me that I am influencing my world, my context, with the light and life of Jesus? How important is that to me? Does that question shape how I live? Am I willing to eliminate things that influence me towards faithlessness, pride, idolatry? Am I willing to put distance between me and certain people? Am I willing to be careful about what I watch? What websites I visit? Am I willing to be careful about what people I follow on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or whatever if they move me to be judgmental or, or obsessed with things that don't matter or, or overly focused on my looks? Am I willing to address those things? At the very least, am I aware of the fact that that influence exists? Am I thinking about the fact that everything I watch, every person I talk to, every podcast I listen to, influences me in one direction or the other? And on top of that, do I consider how I can be an influence to every person in my life? Because in the same way that everything you hear influences you, everything you say and you do influences someone else your family, your kids, your friends, what you post on social media, how you talk about people, how you talk about what's really important to you. Those are all questions that we have to consider. And the hard truth is that oftentimes 
the end of that question is a really hard decision. But let's get to that point where we can face those decisions. Because there is so much at stake. This is our identity. This is our mission as God's people. And like Ezra, the Bible calls us to ask the question, what am I prepared to do for who God calls me to be? As we finish up, there's actually just one last principle from the passage that I want to touch on. See, the response of Israel isn't simply to just send away these foreign women. That's it. Ultimately, what Ezra 9 and 10 is about is a return to the law and a return to the temple, a return to God. See, influence always flows out of our relationship to God. Holiness always flows out of our relationship to God. It's not something we can fake. It's not something we can just try really hard to have. But ultimately, it comes from knowing God, from actually sitting down at the table, tasting how good the meal is, how much blessing there is when we obey, when we live for him, when we do life with him, under him, for him. It's only when we actually believe through experience that God is that good, that God is the only God, that influence becomes natural for us. 1 Peter 2 says this, But you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Influence flows out of who God is and what he has done for you. We declare his praises because he brought us out of darkness. We show mercy because we've received mercy. We love because he first loved us. And so the closing invitation of Ezra really is this, return to God. Return to experience him in your life. Walk closely with him. Know his light and mercy. And in that, be ready to do what it takes to be his people, to be an influencer. Let's pray.